When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. everybody, I'm Neil White and this is The Big Inside View with Graham Hunter. He's just coming. If you're new to the podcast, maybe you found us through Graham's interview with Jurgen Klopp earlier this week. This is a different kind of a show in addition to The Big Interview where we make use of Graham's access and analysis to get his take on something specific in the world of European football. This week, that means the four first legs of the Champions League quarterfinals, two of which Graham attended. Before we get to that, I want to remind newer listeners that there are over 50 Big Interview podcasts on our archive. You can find them on iTunes or Acast or wherever you are listening to this. If you're not a newer listener, I want to remind you that you can support this independent podcast and get ad-free content, including a new and exclusive Big Interview every month at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Again, Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Graham Hunter. It costs £2.99 per month. You get a ton of content straight away and you are literally keeping us on the road recording the interviews. of Tony Britton can mean but one thing we're in Champions League mode Graham you're at the games in Seville and Barcelona for UEFA you've been writing and broadcasting about the Madrid story all season and you just recorded a big interview with the manager of Liverpool I think you are well qualified to look back at these four games are you not? <laughs> um, I don't know who's that style you were mocking there with that are you not that was, was, that, <laughs> was that Lloyd Grossman or something like that that was a very good intro you gave me there Look, um, if you want uh, somebody to be expressing extreme passion and enjoyment uh, for what took place this week, then I'm in a reasonable position, yes, because I feel a bit evangelical about what I've been through. It's been a little bit tiring, but fabulous experience. Just when people try to remind me of something that I've never forgotten, how fortunate I am to be in this position and we often talk about the footballers I meet or the football games I see and I'm asked to report on 
it's it's very often the the stuff around the games that makes me absolutely sure that this is a, a, an immense privilege because there are times when you can sit in a press box and for sure there'll be those at home who are getting a better angle on a shot or a pass or better repeats on it and um, you don't get that in the press box. But what I know is just a fabulous part of my uh, working life fabric is when you meet a coach, meet a player, um, listen to a press conference that's inspirational, it gives you a background to um, their their hopes and dreams or um, shows you, as we'll talk about, somebody who's an extreme character of, of post-war football and you get to listen to them in full flow. These are the things that have... Have lit my candle this week, Neil, and these are the things that I accept are just, you know, the five star golden ticket part of my um, of my career. Let's start in Seville then, because I think that is um, the reference that you just dropped there. It ended <laughs> Sevilla one, Bayern Munich two. It was interesting from the start because both teams came into that Tuesday game off the back of unusual Saturdays. Sevilla saw a two 0 lead against Barcelona evaporate in the final two minutes. Bayern destroyed Dortmund 6-0. When you came up close to both managers, both sets of players in the build-up to this one, did either of those games, the league games, seem significant in terms of, I don't know, fatigue, morale, how people were talking? The the order of the day was uh, watching training and um, Sevilla's training ground is now utterly renewed. They've used the money that they won from UEFA by repeat winning the Europa League three times to really good effect, which is hugely encouraging for me. It's, it's a club that I really enjoy visiting. The The passion of the fans is something that I've found nearly unrivaled across the world, number one in Europe. And every club needs, um, you know, a fridge in which to store its food. You, you have to have a good place in which you can, you know, Bring on the talents, encourage people to join your club. And previously, frankly, Sevilla's training ground was really alley racket, really run down, and it's not now. So to go there and to go in, you still are allowed to go into the staff canteen for your breakfast if you get there on time, which uh, myself and my driver Fran did, and we, we, you know, we mucked about with it. A couple of uh, junior coaches and a couple of people who sort of tend the grass and just a little chit chat to put your finger on the pulse of the club. And there was still a buzz about Saturday night in the way in which, for seventy-seven minutes, they they led Barcelona a dance, a really merry dance too. It was fabulous to watch. And um, when we went to watch training, it was really clear, for example, that Jesus Navas was going to make it, which was a big doubt. We we watched the the, the players training and working out and doing sprints and, and doing passing exercises. And the vibe was good. The buzz was nice. You could see that there was a crispness to it. There was joking between the players. When I talk about, you know, shouts and laughter d- during the exercises, that's usually a very healthy sign, Neil. And, it, and it, it felt that way. And, you know, if you'd used a thermometer, then you'd have said, yeah, things are quite good. The aftershock, the after effect of... Those two goals um, that Suarez and Messi scored to take a result away from Sevilla it didn't seem to be leaving a great big hangover. And onwards to Vincenzo Montella's um, press comments where Pablo Sarabia also spoke. And it was clear that Sarabia was in the mood. He's a very, um, he's a fundamental player for Sevilla. He's the guy that the previous coach, Barizzo, said makes everybody else play better. In due course, he you know missed the best chance of the night draw a great save um, from Ulrich, the the stand-in keeper for Neuer at Bayern Munich. 
and then scored the goal that put Sevilla one ahead. His press conference was fine. I got a question in it. It was interesting. He was he was frank. But then Montella was just he he confuses me because when you're used to coaches from the Italian school, Neil, you you get a, a degree of seriousness, organisation, um, usually. It, not haughtiness, but a certain dignity handed down by the way in which Italian football treats the the, the profession that they're in. It, it, it's somewhere where usually in the eve of a big game, it's not really about jokes or laughter. And Montella is extraordinarily um, lighthearted and boyish, um, full of smiles and jokes. To see somebody more um, relaxed and, and apparently enjoying his life is rare on a tense day um, in, in general across uh, football, in my opinion. And so for a little throwaway example was, it's been the case that Luis Muriel, the Colombian who scored against France and who scored the second against Barcelona at the weekend, has been the striker of choice in Sevilla's 4-2-3-1 formation. He, he's agile, he's pretty rapid over the distance, um, whether it's short, medium, long. He does everything kind of but score particularly when the chances are there for him. And uh, the question from the back of the room came about with Sam Banyeder, French striker, um, but I think from Toulouse, certainly the hero of Old Trafford with those two goals, but who's been largely having to work from the bench um, under Montella. And the question was, so coach, um, what needs to happen? What is it that Banyeder needs to be a starter. And Montel just laughed and said, the Champions League. Everybody found that quite funny and the the, the, the laughter was delayed a little bit. And effectively, he was announcing that Ben Yedder was playing. Nobody really took him all that seriously, but he was basically saying, Ben Yedder with his um, 10 goals and 8 starts, he had 12 in 10 if you include qualifying too um, for the Champions League. It just completely clicks um, when that competition comes to town. He's, he's small, he's got, you know, the front of his stomach juts out a little bit. Uh, the back of his backside juts out a little bit. And as such, given that he's he's a pretty diminutive guy, he's he's not your guy for a 25-metre sprint. But he's such a clever penalty box striker. He is uh, Kevin Phillips-esque. And therefore, you know, I thought it was right that he was involved more. He should have come on against Barcelona at 2-0 up. That, I think, would have tied up the three points. That would have meant that Sevilla were less run around in the in the latter part of the game and less tired for this match. Mercado didn't start. I knew that was going to be bad. That was Mercado not playing meant just the fact that there was less aggression and savvy and know-how at the back. It turned out Montella made a big, big change by dropping Sergio Rico, the keeper, and in came David Soria. Overall, the build-up was good, but the, you're fishing for the, the, the highlight of my day. Just confirm to me, you you were fishing for my views on and my enjoyment of Jupp Heynckes, right? Because you oh, know me so well. Old Man Heynckes, exactly. Old Man Heynckes, you don't you dare! It was a Paul Robeson. It was a Paul Robeson nineteen twenty spiritual Old Man Heynckes, wasn't it? Well, he does just keep rolling along, and um, he rolled into town in Sevilla um, with Javi Martinez by his side. Javi Martinez, I like very much because he's a smashing footballer. He talks to me, and when he was rehabilitating from his um, umpteenth uh, knee ligament injury at, at Bayern, he, when he was given time off to go and relax, he chose to go and visit Aberdeen. Um, I like to think because I kept banging on to him about the mighty dandies, but he did. He just nicked off from Bavaria, took a little getaway trip to Scotland, and thought he'd go and visit the Granite City. So, well done, Javi Martinez. 
So um, when Heinkes began to speak, the things that I really liked, uh, because uh, to set the background, this is a guy I first saw playing in, I think, 72, when his Borussia Mönchengladbach with uh, Bertie Volks, I'm pretty sure Wolfgang Overat, came to Pataudry and won 3-2 and then beat us, I think, 6-3 in Germany. But that that night, um, but still being a kid, I mean, I was eight or nine. Um, it, it was um, football like I'd never seen—a confidence and athleticism, a, a moving of the ball I've never seen. Just that there was a long stage at Petrodi where certain European teams came to our ground, and they they seemed to possess different knowledge, different levels of confidence compared to the brand of football we play. It's an expression often used and listened to now about, like, it, it, it seemed like another football. Well, that that's definitely what it seemed like to me that night. And Hank has um, scored a th- four, at least four across the two legs. So his name and his performance has been embellished in my brain since then. Again, sorry to listeners who've heard this before, but it, it struck me really, really strongly when I was in Amsterdam in 98, the day before the Champions League final, which eventually um, Real Madrid would win because Peja Mijatovic hid his injury from Heinkes and um, wouldn't take penalties in the day before so that his thigh muscle problem wouldn't be apparent. Played and scored, beat. Zidane's Juventus, blah, blah, blah. But on the night before, the league form for Heinkes' Madrid, which had been really poor, was the focus of questioning in the Amsterdam press conference. And he was said, he was asked, do you, do you think that winning the Septima, winning the European Cup after so many years, which I think had lasted since 65 or 66, do you think that will keep you your job? And Heinkes looked really morose then, really um, blue, really down. And it took him... 10 or 13 seconds to 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 answer the question and he just shook his head and went no no it, it won't and I said, well, that's really startling to feel that blue to feel that bad about your job prospects the night before a really really big game and you know in due course they win it like I say through Mijatovic and in due course it, it doesn't rescue him it doesn't keep him on he is sat for the league form and again, you know, Athletic Club, a very good coach and a guy that my friend Ronnie Rang interviewed and because Athletic have a policy of Basques only in an interview because Hankis is, a, I think he's an expressive, honest speaker. He used the expression that when Athletic looked to be not only staying up, which they've always done in La Liga, but maybe win a domestic trophy or qualify for Europe, he used the expression, we're driving around in Volkswagen Beetles whereas the rest of Europe are in Ferraris and Maseratis. Now, his idea was, he claims, that um, they can only buy a certain type of car, they can only buy Basques, but that it's it's a durable, reliable, likeable little car, and it's iconic, but other people will outrun you if they're in Ferraris and Maseratis. And his words with Ronnie in the interview weren't meant to be critical of his board, but they were taken to be critical by the board, by the fans, by parts of the media who exploited it a little bit. And I was very sympathetic to him in that instance. And over the piece, when Bayern won the treble, I thought they played a football that just, it was easy to admire. To see Bayern's famously uh, heated Hollywood-style dressing room tamed by Hankes was impressive. When... Mundo Deportivo, the oldest European uh, football paper that resides in this city in Barcelona, awarded him their man of the year um, in autumn-winter 2013 after he won the treble. Um, He refused. He said, I don't deserve this. And he'd beaten Tito Villanova's um, Barcelona 7-0 over two legs. And he said, Tito Villanova deserves this, not because 
I want to pat him on the head for fighting illness. But if you look at the way he won his domestic title and the type of football they played, the number of goals they scored, how far he got, because I'm pretty sure that was the semi-final that Barcelona lost in, how far he got in the Champions League, given how ill he is, he's the man of the year. I'll accept it if I can, I'll accept coming to your gala if I can present this trophy to him instead. Wow. Mundo Deportivo said, okay. He came and in the end, Tito Villanova was too ill to, to attend the ceremony, but he had it accepted on his behalf, I think by Andoni Zubizarreta, the, the then sports director of Barcelona. You know, without me, you know, weeping into my early morning cup of tea, that, that, I, I want that woven into the fabric of all sport. I want people like that, attitudes like that. So here we have Heinke is now uh, back taking over um, in October to, to try and rescue his Bayern. And and look, Neil, when, when questions are asked in press conferences, you get all varieties of attitudes and answers. But for example, when he talked about Hamas Rodriguez, he said, look, he, this is an, a different player from the one I found in October. He wasn't confident. He wasn't fit enough. I've made him fitter. I, I've spent hours talking to him. He's confident in himself. He's confident in me. He's a different player. Then when he talked about the atmosphere, because the atmosphere at the Nervion is truly unbelievable. If anybody listening to this um, big inside view hasn't heard what's called the centenary hymn um, of, of Sevilla, go onto YouTube and just put in Himno de la Centenario or the Sevilla Anthem and watch it. And I think I think there's a I think there's a previous edition of this very podcast that they could they could search for where you actually sing it along with the severe fans. Uh, the, you may be accurate, but whether season. you're selling whether you're selling the right product or not, I'm not sure. I'm, I but may indeed points. I may indeed sing the beginning of it because it was the day we made the documentary about Sevilla trying to qualify for this very competition that they're in the quarterfinal of at the moment. And you're right, and all all I mean is that it. It's no exaggeration to say it's it's ultra, ultra special. So impressive. And there's a light show that accompanies it now by permission of UEFA and so on and so forth. And Hankers was asked about this. And he said, look, it's a special place. These are special people. This is a city where everybody raises the game when the European competitions come to town. But he said, I've seen special atmospheres before. He said, for example... In 1972-73, I was playing for Borussia Mönchengladbach and we went to Anfield and we heard the cops singing, You'll Never Walk Alone. He said, I took um, Uli Hoeneß, one of his um, bosses because he's managing director, and Karl-Heinz Rummenigge got aside and said, "This Sevilla's going to be like this. The two, the two clubs have never met in European competition, Neil, before. So Rummenigge and Hoeneß clearly hadn't known what the Nervian was going to be like. He said, this is going to be an experience like Anfield in 1973. Already you're into an answer where you're like, wow, <laughs> given that I'm old enough to remember what that means and, and given the honour he's doing Sevilla to make that comparison, this is brilliant. But then he did what we're always looking for with our questions in interviews or in press conferences. He expanded and put context and he went, look, you know, my players aren't going to be scared. This is what, you play football for, you coach football for. the atmosphere, and, and I like the atmosphere in the pitch is going to be great for my players too. And that's the truth. Unless you're dealing with one of these stadiums, stadiums where, um, you know, there's no policing and the fans are racist or throwing things or likely to invade the pitch. Atmospheres like these, like Liverpool, like Celtic Park, like occasionally um, Barcelona and Madrid can be, they're not to be threatened by, they're to be inspired by. 
and and I think his talking like that and admiring what he was about to you know undergo the next night, but but putting it in context, I really like that. And I could go on and on and on about his press conference because it was fabulous. He flitted from German to Spanish. He was, in turns, serious, sometimes um, a little bit facetious, um, always interesting, classy. And and outside, this guy who is known as being a, a, a sort of serious, hard-working, thorough man of German football, um, stood... The stadium opens out into a, a pedestrian concourse and there were some metal barriers around the, about five feet away from the Bayern team bus. But metal barriers unpatrolled by anybody. It was just societal norms that was keeping the, the huge crowd of Sevilla fans who'd queued up to see Bayern exiting the stadium after training. There's there's no night to stop them charging the bus. And the, the mob of people were screaming and shouting and waving mobile phones. And this 72-year-old guy stood for 20 minutes with fans of the opposition club signing autographs, posing for normal-style pictures, posing in selfies with people, just effectively showing huge respect for the city of his opponents. And I, I think, I thought I interpreted it, showing a lot of enjoyment about being back in Spanish football where he coached Real Madrid and Athletic, I think across a total of six or seven years. And um, knowing that because he's announced his retirement, again, okay, for the second time, I admit, but this is probably his last game in, in Spain, Ajax. But I suppose unless he were to go through and draw a bus on a Real Madrid, making the most of it, drinking from the cup and um, in so doing making Bayern look ultra ultra special, ultra friendly each of the players who came through stopped a little bit and would pose for four or five minutes for a selfie or whatever and it's it's a little bit unlike me but I sought out Bayern Munich's communication manager um, at the end of the game and said listen, the experience of your club over the last two days has been you know, sensational, um, it's brilliant for football and, and I meant it, you know, it was heartfelt what I said. And I, I still, I'm trying to communicate that now. I saw something that really made me proud of football, really made me proud of Bayern Munich in an era where people feel dislocated from superstars who get paid £350,000 a week, dislocated from owners. Then to me, what Heinkes did, what Bayern Munich as a club did, was, was again, the essence of what I like about football. And hats off to them for that. And, and people will have seen the game, so maybe we... We skip over the fact that, you know, Sevilla start well, deserve to be, you know, two up, aren't. Tire and the, their legs fall off in the second half. Bayern Munich show really steely cleverness, um, control the game, control possession, make um, make Sevilla run in a way that they're not used to, didn't like. Banega not playing meant no control of the ball for Sevilla. The two goals that um, go in, uh, one of which is is given to Navas as an own goal. That's probably like right. The scruffy goal from Thiago takes a deflection, but it's on target initially. So Thiago gets it. And I, I know people may remember, I know Thiago from 12 years ago when he was my neighbor in our building in Pedralbas in Barcelona with his brother Rafinha, his mom, his dad, Massinho. Massinho was at the game and I bumped into him. So it was nice to say, Hola, Vecino, hello, neighbor. We had a nice little chat, and he was sat about eight people along from me in the in the stand. So when Diego scores to make it two one, and I think effectively put Bayern in the in the semi final, 
I, I stood up and looked left to see my scene and just to give him a little wave as in, you know, well done, your journey down has been worth it. <laughs> and I just see him being grabbed by a sort of big burly Bayern Munich fan who was to his left. And so grabbed him around the shoulders, hugged him and, and sort of kissed him on the head, which, which Massinho, World Cup winning Massinho for Brazil, didn't look overly delighted about. But it happened, folks. So... The game is good. Uh, the, the the tie up the, the velvet bow um, is that uh, I got uh, a very pleasant and reasonably extended for a flash position um, interview with Stephen Nzonzi, who I like very much indeed and admire as a footballer. And then uh, came the coup de grace where Frank Ribery, who we'd named as man of the match at UEFA and therefore I got an interview with, um, specified that he, he French? No, 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 I'm not doing the interview in French. Ooh. Monsieur, uh, dommage, uh, because I can handle a little bit of French for an interview, and he insisted you would only do it in German. Now it's um, 38 or 39 years since I got my my um, German hire, and therefore it was a bit of a struggle, but uh, we did the interview in German, <laughs> Frank und ich. Ich habe Deutsch gesprochen mit Frank Ribery, and... Uh, we, we, we got an interview out of it. One of the questions, one of the answers is there on the UEFA.com website if people don't believe me, if they want to see it. And fair play, uh, Rivers, he, he treated me as if I was a German speaker. And uh, so I nodded along to the question and I gave a damn fine answer. So, herzliche Grüßen, mein Liebchen Frank. It's a bon anniversary, Monsieur Ribery, because tomorrow, as we record, he is 35 and still rocking and rolling down the left for Bayern. Pretty impressive. Yeah, that's is super. That's is super. <laughs> so good. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Let's leave Severe behind us. And I'm glad that you're focusing on kind of your experience around these matches and not just the action on the pitch. That's exactly what we're looking for. Um, and it was a, a local gig for you the day after. You're in your hometown, Barcelona. Finishes Barcelona 4, Roma 1. It didn't always feel like a 4-1 game for long stretches. It did, it um, did not. You're right. It damn but I want to ask, I want to ask you a more general question about Barcelona. Um, and you can give us some colour about your experience, but this is slightly more football-based, but it's more about the mood in general um, around the team. We've been talking about Barca, you and I, probably since we started working together on your book about Guardiola's team, which is actually eight, eight years ago uh, now since yeah. we started work on that one. So I've learned a lot from you, I reckon, and one of the things that's always stuck with me across different iterations of this team was this observation that you had that they always seem to find this special gear around this time of the season in April. And I want to know if you've seen them click into that gear this season. No, 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 it. no. It's it's exactly the opposite. Um, I agree yeah, that's what you, I thought. I, I agree with you that w- what you've drawn out there is is was the Pep Guardiola phrase. And, and we're going to have to take a mallet and batter it to hell later on in this discussion because of what, happened at Anfield but at Barcelona he he, he made it a, a dictum that you 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 train to play you train as you expect to play during the season you play to win and you play with a certain style during the year but when it comes to and he pretty much named April he talked about it being about nothing other than winning and he was trying to imbue a ruthlessness, a mentality. And it, it's a delicate flower because he wasn't saying it's okay to lose in October. But he was saying that if everything is, if, if you tick all the boxes about preparation, attitude, playing style, and you lose in August, November, January, then you haven't let yourself down. But that in the in the moments where, because he has a he has a belief, and I think he's he's proven it, that finals you win. His his record in finals is very very good. It's not a hundred percent, but his perception is that if you assemble a great squad, great players, finals take care of themselves, and by and large you don't lose. And the one that he famously lost the Copa del Rey final was one where he happily insisted on playing. Pinto and Goal and Adriano, and he 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 did he didn't betray the Copa del Rey ideal of using a sort of B plus team, not an A team. And if you've played during the season, you've got me to the final. You'll play again, and it's something that's there's been a debate about this in in England. I think there was a big debate about Willy Caballero uh, starting the League Cup final. Blah blah blah, this kind of stuff. So finals take care of themselves if if you if particularly if it's a you know if it's a Champions League final you play your A team and we'll win that was his idea between two thousand and eight and and twenty twelve, but April was the time whereby you, you were usually knackered mentally or physically by your efforts in coming this far. You might well be playing a team, for example, with. A, a lesser load of games, particularly if it was a German team, because they have a, a winter break, they have no league cup, they have a smaller number of teams in the league. Blah blah. blah. At any rate, Guardiola's phrase was that he he wanted to imbue a, 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 
a steel, a cutting edge, a nastiness about Barcelona's performance domestically too in April. And for example, I sat and interviewed um, Carlos Puyol yesterday morning. Um, it was the most fluid, most enjoyable, most I don't want to say articulate in a in a in a demean in a in a sort of snooty way. But his enthusiasm bubbled out, maybe just talking about olden days for the first time in a long time. And he talked about the, the moment in 2009, in April, when they went to the, the Bernabeu with a four-point lead. And around them, Barcelona, Guardiola's Barcelona, around them was this vibrant uh, feeling in, in the Catalan media, but a draw's good enough. Keep the four-point gap coming out of the classical, and that's fine. And Puy said that Guardiola took them before the game and said, look, um, a draw isn't good enough, but also if we play to draw, we will lose. It's guaranteed that they will beat us if we play for a draw. We're coming here, we're going to get after them, we're going to play them off the pitch, and we're going to beat them. Now, these just sound like words retrospectively because it's now well known that despite you know Madrid taking the lead through Higuain at 6-2, the way the game finishes, Puyol scores, Pique scores, etc. But it's an example of what he meant about April. You, you, you... You don't renounce any of your principles. You you play bare knuckle football so that you win, and the stat you're referring to is the fact that the last few seasons, um, under a couple of different coaches, Barcelona have been have been exhausted by April. So the the semi final under Tito Villanova was a seven nil defeat. Subsequently, um, Barcelona have gone out. I think under Tata Martino and Luis Enrique to Atletico a couple of times. Um, they were pretty nearly humiliated last season by Juve. There are a sprinkling of examples, but that ready in April thing has gone. And right now, they're knackered. It's been patent, I think, for a few weeks. It's been patent as far back as the importance of beating Atleti 1-0 um, to, to, in my view, pretty much seal the title. They They deserve to win that one. Atleti didn't really turn up properly, but they fought. They made it difficult. An informed Barcelona would have taken three off Atleti that, that day. They didn't, and that made it very nervous for them until the end. It was the Messi free kick. Brilliant that it was, that settled a really enthralling game. But there was no third gear, never mind fourth or fifth for Football Club Barcelona. They walked through the second half against Athletic Club. Um, they were... They were ripped to shreds in the Nervi on, on Saturday against Sevilla for 77 minutes until Messi comes on. Paulinho, when he came on against Roma, played his 80th game without a holiday, without a break. 80th. And that's pretty serious. He's been playing constant football since starting pre-season in January 2017 um, because of the Chinese season cuts across the European pre-season. And therefore... You can see he's knackered. Busquets played too early from a back, coming back from a fractured toe. Ernesto Valverde admitted that had it not been a game of such importance, he wouldn't have played. And Busquets asks to come off because he's feeling pain in the fracture again. Um, Messi has a, a, a sort of associated groin hamstring problem. You know, he's he's not right. And and these are, I think, emblematic of several minor problems across the squad where they are they are. They're creatively and physically pretty knackered. Iniesta is playing far more games than could be expected of his age. Ivan Rakitic is is literally a marvel. He um, has already played more La Liga minutes this season than an entire last season. There are eight games left. 
and and he's topped his minutes total. And and this time last week, or match time last week, um, in fact, I think under a week prior to having to play, well, he 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 anchors the midfield in Busquets' absence against Sevilla. So just let me say, from Wednesday, um, sort of Southern USA time, he's playing football in Dallas for Croatia, scoring the winner. Incurring jet lag on the way back, not getting a lot of sleep, playing against Sevilla, um, being one of those who had to run his legs off to try and contain Montella's side. And and by Wednesday, he's playing against a Roma side that presses and harasses and closes down Barca in a very, very clever, very athletic way. And and yet, I, I make no bones about having named him man of the match for UEFA, uh, Raki. You know it's extraordinary, but it, it, you know the you, the cracks will, will show, will develop, and they nearly did. I don't think Roma got just rewards from the performance. I think they could easily have scored more. Yes, Barca had chances other than their four goals um, to add to their total, but it was a, it was a jittery, nervy, tired uh, performance, and as such, it sits in the middle of what you were asking about, Neil. It's the, it's the raspberry jam in the middle of the sunblessed bread because, you know, on 2008-2012, in general, Guardiola's team was ready in April. Irrespective of the Inter game, irrespective of the, the Chelsea game, they were ultra competitive. They should have won the Inter game more than 1-0 at home. They had a bus journey, thanks to Volcanic Ash, to go to, to Milan that, and, and awful refereeing decisions in, against Chelsea. They bossed the game in London, should have won 3-4-5-1, didn't, went out at home 2-2. They, they, across the period of Guardiola, the Easter time period, they did come alive. They did bring home the bacon. Two Champions League wins tells you about that. Copa wins tell you about that. And then for years they couldn't. And this time they probably should have been vulnerable. They probably should have been taken down and they weren't. And that says something about the team's mentality, about Valverde's mentality and about momentum. And although I think they'll have a, a, they might have a torrid time in Rome, I I think the three goal advantage, it, it was vital that Suarez scored his first Champions League goal in 13 months. His first Champions League goal since that Paris Saint-Germain tie. And I don't think he scored away in the Champions League for two years since Roma. So that fourth goal whereby he takes advantage of a loose ball and, and, and thrashes at home, that's the that's the vital goal. I, I I think they go through, but I I think they'll be uh, I think they'll be probably tested next week in the Italian capital. And it does sound as though you're describing a team that are um beatable in a semi-final you know it's, it sounds if you know they get through this game and, you, and you're saying it falls somewhere between those two stools but it does sound like a team who that, you made your case Neil I, I agree yeah. with you I'm I, I, and if, if they if they get there to the semi-final my response to you then will be depending on who they draw I, I'm pretty clear that it'll be a it'll be a you know a contest that, that Barcelona will like if it's Bayern Munich uh, they'll, they'll, they'll probably enjoy that game if it's if it's Real Madrid at a time when they're already tired and and then the order of the games for me will be paramount. It will bring a, a heavy weight of social difficulties, um, given what's going on in this country. Um, a Barca Real Madrid semi final is is quite honestly for the first time in my life 
something I, I'd rather avoid for the for the benefit of football because the the degree of anger and and antipathy between certain Madrid institutions and certain parts of Catalonia is 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 reaching boiling point. And therefore, the Molotov cocktail effect of, of Madrid and Barcelona drawing each other in a semi-final, I, I think it's something for the benefit of football and the benefit of the competition, it would be better avoided. But there's, you know, if Barcelona qualify, there's a weak gap, at least a weak gap, I think, maybe two between the, the quarter and the semi. Busquets' fracture will have healed. Messi may have found his form again. Coutinho will have taken um, Iniesta's place in, in league games and Iniesta potentially can um, find some legs potentially the title can be very nearly wrapped up it, it'll be a whole bundle of new circumstances by the semi-final they won't suddenly be running on AAA batteries but it, you know if they get through um, it, it'll be a different scenario I think If we're talking about extra gears um, then one thing is for certain, and that is that Real Madrid and in particular their number seven are accelerating mm. through the last stage of the season. Uh, this was a game you weren't at, obviously. Juventus nil, Madrid three. And enough has been said uh, about Ronaldo's second goal, but I, I wanted to connect it to the the reception that you got from the Juventus fans all around that stadium Um and a game that you were at, and that is the sort of Ronaldinho Classico at the Bernabeu. It's very unusual. Yeah. In a game like that, it's very unusual for home support to give such accolade to the talisman of their of their rival. And, you know, me, I was fortunate enough to be with you in Liverpool um, last week when we recorded the big interview with Jurgen Klopp and both you and I, and then later you and, and Jürgen, talked about when football can connect emotionally with the people who, who love the sport and watch it. And those moments are very, very special. I don't know if you can think of another one apart from those two, but when you saw what happened in Turin, did it remind you of that night? I have seen, you're right, I was at the Ronaldinho game, and the Ronaldinho game, I guess, we've not rehearsed this, I guess it was 2005, not 2004, it was certainly November. I was there with nine or ten mates from Clontarf in Dublin. We, we took the metro to the game. Um, somebody tried to pickpocket us on the way there. Got two out of the 11 tickets. I needed help. I phoned a journalist saying, listen, I'm stuck. There's two of these of this group that now aren't getting in. He, he was like, oh, come and see me just outside the game. It was close to kickoff time with all the chaos. And, and he was like, here, here, I've got two tickets. And... Just give me, and he was running already to get in back into the stand to get into it. Just make sure you keep the ticket stubs and give me them at the end. I said, "Why? Why?" He said, "You'll see." So take the tickets <laughs> in my hand. <laughs> I know, I know. I, listen, you got to let me act it out a little. There were police horses all around us. They were trying to shepherd us away from this guy. Um, it wasn't far from kickoff. Um, it, it, was, it was pretty dramatic as he ran off, briefcase in hand. And and I looked at the tickets and we were in, great. But it was like, it had Zinedine Zidane imprinted on the tickets. I said, what the hell? So there were guest tickets from Zinedine Zidane. So how he got them is another story altogether. And why he wanted the stubs back for his records would be quite obvious now. So we're sitting in, in the seats. And all around me during the game, Eto and Ronaldinho were subjected to the, the some of the worst racist abuse I've ever heard. And, you know, it was ultra depressing. And 
Ronaldinho scores his two goals. But around me and below me, you can see some of the same people who've been racially abusing Ronaldinho uh, standing up and applauding. And the infamous guy who the cameras catch and becomes the front page of Marca the next day is below me in a lower tier and I can't see him. But he's a mustachioed guy who um, just stands up and says, applauds, and he's clearly a Madrid fan. That was well done. That was brilliant. And he... he he gets humility. He gets so much abuse in Spain in the ensuing weeks on radios, shows, and TV shows that he repents. He says, "I wish I'd never done it." Now, you know there are there are there are many around him who, who don't feature on camera who did the same, and you know I've seen the the, the overall footage, some of the broadcast and some of the non-broadcast footage from other cameras subsequently, and it really is credit to Real Madrid's fan base that so many hundreds of them just went, that's outstanding. We're losing 3-0 at home in a Clasico, but we will start. It may actually have been the 2-0 goal, but we'll stand up and we'll applaud. So that di- you're, I was there and it did matter to me and I was impressed and I, and I honour everybody who honoured him that day. But the, what Turin, when I saw it this week, did to me was a couple of things. I, I was at... Uh, the 1999 um, United treble winning semi-final, uh, both legs, Manchester United Juventus. And um, they were a side who since, I think, 93 had either won a European competition or been beaten in the final of a competition every year but once. So from 93 to 1999, you're talking about the European aristocrats and United beat them. And at the Delhi Alpi that night, the the previously ultra-hostile Juve fans, as United walk around the pitch looking for their own, trying to find their own away fans to applaud them, the, the Turin public just stand up, those that are left, and applaud United. And I like that. Therefore, to see that in, in Turin uh, when Madrid were uh, pretty much humiliating Allegri's side. And then to see something else, Neil, you, you've had to put up with me many times, you and Martin, on this podcast, not defending Cristiano Ronaldo, but trying to express my admiration for him and trying to explain why people should probably be able to put aside some of his peccadillos, some of his idiosyncrasies, and, and admire the core, ad- admire the thing that he's actually doing. He's not famous for He's not a footballing Kardashian. He's not famous for being famous. He's not famous for having plucked eyebrows. He's famous because he's exceptional. And therefore, to see what I've tried to communicate sometimes in the few times I've been up close and personal with him, to see him genuinely touched and not putting on any act, but genuinely humble to recognise that people were recognising him despite them wearing black and white scarves. I really like that. And, and, and for anybody who's paying attention, anybody with acuity, that was something that people yearn for when we, again, come back to your theme about, you know, I've had privileged access this week because I'm reasonable at my job. Anybody who was watching that game had privileged access because you saw the real Cristiano Ronaldo. He couldn't believe what was happening. To hit him, what was more special was the public rather than his goal. OK, last stop, Liverpool. When you and I sat down... Um, to record your interview with Jurgen Klopp, it was great. Afterwards, uh, we sat down in the in the players' canteen, 
Um, and <laughs> we were we were privy to a conversation where two Liverpool Football Club insiders kind of told us why they thought something like this might happen. Yeah. Yeah, true. Look, the argument at the time, because we, we for anybody who's not yet listened to the Jurgen Klopp interview, we, we, we took an editorial decision between the three of us, Yumi and Jurgen, now Yumi and Martin, to, 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 to try and let Jurgen Klopp's character come out, to try and make sure that what the interview did wasn't focusing on a moment in time, the, the, the city tie, but to try and um, let his, his thoughts, his personality, his character, his colour come out as much as we were able to make that happen um, such that you could listen to this interview in six months or 16 months and it would hopefully mean as much and therefore we, we, we didn't really in any way apart from talking to him about his experience in going to the Champions League final in 13 and and the, and the madcap um, roller coaster tie against Malaga where it, it, it got under his skin so much that the second answer he gave on that subject was lasted about 12 minutes. We we hadn't set the table in any way for the Manchester City tie. So coming out of the interview and feeling it had gone quite well, to, to be dragged into the build-up to the tie by these guys in the canteen was interesting and they were really clear. It wasn't a sort of fans' point of view about, I will take them. They were like, one... It's really good that the ties have been drawn this way. The traditional way is is to play away first and home second. They were like, no, 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 no. City can't handle Anfield. It's a long time since they've got anything at Anfield. It's it's kryptonite to them. Not not the, just the crowd, but the the experience of playing at Anfield. And they weren't just referring to the uh, the four one four three game earlier in the season that we talked to Andy Robertson about. They were convinced that. Liverpool at Anfield has become a pill that City can't swallow and wouldn't be able to swallow. And then their argument was that Liverpool are a team that when the front three are there and the rest are playing adequately, can damage anybody on the break, particularly if that other team happens to be chasing a, a team, chasing the opposition. And and, and the argument from, from these guys who are at training every day and who are you know with the players every day was that if Liverpool could do a job in the first game, that they would definitely score and therefore go through in Manchester. And, you know, we're halfway there, which is what you were asking me about, I guess. Exactly so. And that theory, which played out, contradicts um, old man Hanke's point that the atmosphere is, you I, know, nah, works, nah, works nah, for his nah, players. I'm not buying any of that at all. Atmosphere at Anfield that I've watched you don't think on the TV. You don't think Anfield, you don't think Anfield the other night affected any of those City players? Well, uh, the first thing, if, if, if you're hinting at what happened outside, then... No, know, no, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm talking... And, let's, you know, let's put that to one side. Well, but it, that, that play, it that made me angry because right, the, brilliance, the brilliance of the atmosphere in Anfield can't be taken separately from what happened outside the ground. And all I'll say is, over the last year, since somebody tried to bomb or blow up the Dortmund bus, it's a slightly different experience, but I'm not sure that the any any set of players on a bus that's being attacked exactly know what's going to happen. And therefore, listening to the Dortmund guys and, and how, it, how it shook them and how it's taken them a lot of time to get over that, I'm worried that if City were off their stride... It was to do with the bus being attacked, not the noise in the night, is my opinion. I'm not masquerading it as fact, Neil. But in the second half, it's my it's my idea that City showed 
really clearly showed without getting the away goal that if if the if the next 90 minutes are like the last 45 minutes this tie is not over Puyol's verdict to me was look you know Liverpool deserved their, their their victory there is no doubt that they're the favorites to go through he said but he said I know Pep I know what he'll be teaching people I know what he'll be trying to do like you know the don't write the tie off as absolutely dead. Now, I I, th- I think Liverpool do score. I think Liverpool do go through. I'll be genuinely, although we've seen 3-0 leads overturned, we've seen something monstrous happen between PSG and Barca last season. I don't really think that City are going to go through. But 3-0 in penalties, <sighs> stranger things have happened. 4-0 would really surprise me, and I think Liverpool are going to go through. OK, that just about wraps up for these quarterfinal first leg games Graham Hunter thank you very much that was fun thank you next up on the big interview is Troy Deeney Graham recorded a great interview with Troy at Watford's training ground last week there will be an extract of that interview on this feed but for the whole thing you need to be a socio of the podcast for £2.99, you get twice as many big interview podcasts plus a monthly documentary podcast. And everything we do is ad-free for socios. Go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.